Hello and welcome to the official Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archer Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Our firm has launched this podcast series to help simplify some of the complex challenges that occur when owning and operating a business and to assist business owners to better understand the inner workings of their organization, regardless of which industry you operate within. Every month, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring special guests from industry, as well as Archie Gallen Redshaw directors Ian Walker, Smilian Jankovic, and Valda Glynn, to provide their commentary on a variety of business management topics, alongside expertise surrounding accounting, taxation, and business strategy. Welcome to our podcast series, Building Your Business. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Building Your Business podcast presented by Archer Gallen Redshaw Chartered Accountants. My name is Chris Lewis and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Vanessa Shortino, a special counsel from Nicholson Solicitors alongside AGR Managing Director, Smilian Jankovic. Those who listen regularly to, to our series throughout the year will probably recognise Vanessa from our previous Management Rights podcast, so it's great to, to have her back um, on our series and giving her unique insights and um, developments all surrounding management rights. Um, that previous episode gave a, a pretty in-depth uh, perspective with regards to accounting and, and legal considerations for more established management rights complexes and businesses. So, um, yeah, it was really great to, to hear a lot of um, information from Vanessa in that respect but um, yeah welcome. Thanks Chris thanks for having me back. <laughs> welcome as well Smoyan. Thank you thanks Vanessa uh, for coming. Uh, so we'll continue along the, the same track of, of management rights and um, speaking further to that but this particular episode will be more um, from a off-the-plan management rights um, perspective and, and giving a, a general overview from that particular area um, covering a, a variety of uh, I guess considerations with regards to, to purchasing an off-the-plan management rights probably asking the, the very simple question of what are they to, to begin with um, and then also look at uh, the importance of, of checking, I guess, the, uh, the letting appointments, keeping those up to date, and a lot of the accounting and, and legal, I guess, components that fall into play with, uh, with everything surrounding off-the-plan uh, management rights complexes. So we spoke, uh, I guess, in detail last time introducing Vanessa, but uh, just as a, a bit of a brief background, she's got 15 years' experience within the legal sector, uh, practising in the areas of management rights, hotels, motels, body corporate and property law. Vanessa is an industry accredited practitioner, an associate member of Arama and an industry pre preferred supplier for finances in management rights as well. So, so once again, welcome. Thank you. What is buying um, off the plan? Uh, and I'll ask that to, to both yourself, Vanessa, but also uh, Smillian as well to get your, uh, your perspectives. So buying off the plan is simply um, buying a unestablished business. So it's the first grant of a management rights to a manager. So we call it procuring. So we're buying something that doesn't yet exist. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with, um, yeah, uh, with uh, Vanessa. Um, from the accounting perspective, yeah, probably involved a bit later than um, as opposed to the uh, legal side. And but yes, the buying of the plan is just something buying that it's um, uncertain. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, however, there's a lot of assumptions that can be put in place in order to determine and uh, come up uh, with some proposed scenarios how uh, people can buy the up the plan as opposed to established businesses. Yep. Following on from that, who who normally buys off the plan management rights complexes? 
So from a developer's perspective, they're looking to sell their management rights to especially large stage projects to established experienced managers with a proven ability to deliver a high quality service to owners. Um, so in more of the townhouse complexes, you're, you could have your first time buyers there or again, somebody that's known to the developer. Um, and that way they create an existing relationship and a long-term relationship so that the developer will often refer that same um, manager back for a uh, a future project that they're working on, knowing that they're going to do the best that they can for the developer's asset and in the promotion of that um, and to, I guess, keep the reputation of that developer um, on track um, for future. And yeah, exactly. The From the buyer's perspective, when we work with the buyers, uh, normally parties sometimes are involved with the development uh, of the complexes and um, let's say there's a two parties uh, as part of development one decides to carry on with the you know uh, management of the of the units and then they'll buy actually the business of the development company so there'll be pretty much uh, a lot of common business between two parties they'll understand each other so there'll be one sort of uh, example there'll be another example as Vanessa mentioned that experienced existing operators and managers that work closely with the developers they'll be looking to buy off the plan and that's their sort of uh, business proposal and proposition so this is their uh, strategies in experience they're constantly looking for those opportunities buy off the plan establish it keep it for a couple of years and sell it uh, and make some profits yeah and I guess they're becoming more attractive than ever because um, they're often being sold now without the requirement to also purchase a unit in the complex, which makes it more uh, attractive and affordable for, um, especially if they're new time managers or first time managers um, or even established ones because then they can operate their business from other premises um, while still performing the duties for the new a complex that they take on. Yeah, certainly. And uh, that, that gives that sort of uh, economies of scale to the existing um, operators where they'll purchase off the plan and add to the existing portfolio. And um, in, in the same way, they will manage multiple complexes. And uh, because of that experience and having an experience of uh, relief management people, uh, it gives them that economies of scale. They can easily uh, minimise a lot of costs and maximise their net operating profit across the business What's required when setting up an off-the-plan management rights um, complex, I guess both from a legal perspective but then also from an accounting point of view as well? How long do you have, Chris? We could talk about this one for a very long time. (laughs) A developer might start thinking about their project years in advance before we even get to um, procuring the management rights side of things. So when the developer... um, starts to think about what they're going to create, what their product is going to look like, whether they're going to have a complex that's a one-storey, one one building complex with a number of units or if it's going to be a townhouse. There's a lot of different considerations that need to be taken into account. So they have to think about that at such an early stage. Um, they are required to give certain disclosures, which is pres- very prescriptive under the different legislation. So included in that is um, 
budgets, a copy of the unit contract, copies of the agreements with or the proposed agreements with the body corporate managers, um, any other services agreements, for example, whether there's going to be origin electricity, whether there's going to be internet services connected and um, most importantly for this discussion is the management rights agreement. So whether that's a caretaking agreement and a letting agreement or a combined agreement, um, thinking about it from such an early stage that can then cause um, concerns or issues for a buyer of the management rights in that three years ago the when the developer was first thinking about their development uh, there may have been a number of changes to the plans as they're being approved by council or updates to them, um, changes in the amenities being provided. So when you're looking at the actual agreements, and when we're talking about the agreements here, we're talking about the caretaking and letting, um, is looking at the duties that uh, relate to the complex and whether it is um, right for the development. Yeah, we as an accounting from an accounting perspective, um, normally we, we come kind of in two stages. Um, so working with cluster with the developer, if we work with the developer, we will be working on the feasibility report on in terms of the project, um, helping and assisting with the um, budgets and uh, certain cost analysis, um, how things can be managed, and um, what what is the time frame of the of the particular project. Um, later on, uh, when it comes down to settling everything after all the legal side has been looked after, caretaking and letting agreements have been drafted and organised, um, then we'll be helping assisting in terms of uh, giving some projections about number of uh, units in the in the complex, what we try to achieve in terms of uh, selling those uh, units. Uh, there's always question whether the developer will be engaging uh, a manager from the day one and help and assist in selling the units or they'll be looking um, using some uh, outside third-party marketing companies to help and assist. So it really depends uh, who the developer is and how what is their strategies in working uh, along those lines. Yeah, when it comes down to putting the business for sale to the potential buyers, um, organising uh, projection figures, um, sort of uncertainty that you know those units will be sold uh, to potential investors uh, and if the complex is in quite good stage it can attract, attract a lot of on occupy unfortunately so that can drive the business down for both um, uh, developer and manager but the first priority of the of the developer will be anyway to sell the, the units um, uh, to pretty much on occupy or investor anyway yeah, I guess once they've sold, they don't really care who they go to. <laughs> but it. Um, it may affect the letting component of the procurement agreement itself in terms of whether they're going to get more money from the um, the manager themselves or not. Yeah, that's another thing. So it really depends what you know how, how they're looking, what is more valuable for them to sell the unit and then as opposed to looking to sell the management rights business as well, which is have to be looked after you know, at the same stage in the same way, yeah. Vanessa, you spoke there about the agreements, both the, the caretaking and the letting agreements there. What do you need to be on the lookout for in those agreements? Now, I know you spoke, uh, I guess, briefly there about the duties and how they relate in, in those. Um, but what's the, what's the key requirements, as I say, what, uh, you know, what, what should individuals be on the lookout for in those agreements? So like with any other management 
agreements, you're looking out for um, things that are affecting the industry at the moment. So ensuring that, say, gallery V clauses aren't in your termination um, provisions or if they are, they need to be dealt with. But more specifically, when we're talking about the duties, we're looking at hours, office hours, whether there is an office and if there is an office, what's going to be set up there when you purchase it. So um, I guess before we look at the agreements, we've, we have to take a step back to the procurement agreement, but we'll start with the caretaking agreement now and come back to procurement. Um, so my biggest bugbears in the um, caretaking agreements in terms of the duties are bins, post boxes, offices and car parks. So these become the biggest issues and it sounds ridiculous but these are just things that um, developers seem to overlook and by the time it's it's come to the time we need to really um, drill down and get to um, solve these bits they're ready thinking about settling the units and it, it makes it really difficult. So the manager then becomes responsible for all of these things and dealing with the owners once they're there. So it's really key to make sure that these things um, uh, are looked at. So I'll, I thought I might just give some examples of how these affected clients in the past. Um, so um, some of the so I'll start with um, bins because this has just recently happened. Um, You know, I can't believe how many uh, developers by that stage still haven't considered the locations of bins, how the bins are going to be moved, whether there's any type of um, services agreement with um, an industrial company if they've got industrial bins for uh, a high-rise. If the complex has industrial bins, a manager cannot be expected to move them by hand up, say, a ramp or even up uh, a small space. This is a specialist duty. They need to be provided with some sort of equipment to assist them in moving those bins. That could be a little trike that they can hook on and move it or some other type of equipment. That equipment needs to be supplied at the cost of the body corporate. Um, We recently had one where um, we were assured that there were four industrial bins in the complex. It's a two-tower building, four industrial bins, and they would be emptied weekly. It turns out there's 13 industrial bins and they get emptied twice a week. And the manager is is expected to move these. Um, It is just that would be a full-time job for somebody That's to insane, do. insane, yeah. That's definitely... Um. It, there could also be bin shoots. You know, who's responsible to clean that? Well, a, a manager can't crawl into that bin shoot space and clean them. That's a specialist duty as well. Um, so these things are, you know, they sound silly and hilarious. How do we go from four bins to 13? But these things happen. Um, car parks is another one, and I harp on about this a lot. Cleaning a car park is, again, a specialist duty. Um, a, a manager cannot be expected to um, pressure clean a car park, which has multiple levels uh, on a regular basis. Not only the time, but also getting ensuring that the cars are moved, furniture's moved, anything that shouldn't be there is moved, um, is not something that the manager is required to undertake if the 
body corporate want them to do that? Again, they need to supply them with the tools to do that and they need to be appropriate for the task at hand. Post boxes, and I suppose this is not as much of an issue given that we're not really receiving mail, but, um, you know, packages. So I had one where they had not considered where the post boxes were going to be located. So this one had a manager, no office, the post boxes were inside the complex on the ground level. You couldn't get into the complex without a swipe access. And the manager was required to collect the mail daily and distribute it to each of those um, mailboxes. And my question was, so is the manager required to stand outside waiting for the postman every day? I mean, that's not a duty that uh, they're required to do. Yeah, and um, so normally as part of that, is this the main reason that the developers is approaching to some legal companies that are not as experienced in the in that sort of off the plan setting up caretaking agreements that these things are overlooked at the time? And when do you sort of discover that? So at what time you would normally pick this uh, issue? I, I think there's two things that happen. A developer hasn't really considered the needs of the complex and how things practically work. And secondly, the lawyers engaged have simply used generic agreements with generic lists of duties. So again, you know, going through them, um, and this only happens when a manager's lawyer looks at the agreements in detail. And as I do, turn my mind to, okay, what does the complex look like? What's actually there? What do we need to do to maintain it? Um, I've had agreements that referred to gyms and pools, but there were neither in the complex. If they're not in the complex, they shouldn't be referred to in the agreement because that conf- that causes confusion um, because I'm scratching my head looking at the plans going, well, where's the pool? Where's the gym? Um, who's supplying the gym equipment? So uh, uh, it really needs to be looked at very carefully. So it... There's multiple factors that are at play there. So where there's something in the agreements that aren't appropriate and they can't be, uh, I guess, done in the in the time, has um, you know, as you say, if there's duties that are you know, sixty hours, but really they're forty hours or, or anything like that, um, is it easy to get those changed? What's that process look like? So. At that stage, usually a developer is reluctant to make any changes to an agreement. So we're very particular with which ones that we will try to insist upon. And this all comes down to a developer not wanting to um, do what's called redisclosure. And my little um, phrase at the moment is, Redisclosure is not a dirty word. So when an existing unit buyer enters into an off-the-plan contract, they're given what's called a, dis- a disclosure statement, which must comply with strict requirements uh, under the relevant legislation. Where there has been a change since that first agreement, a developer must redisclose before settlement can occur. So a buyer may have a termination right in circum- circumstances, in certain circumstances, which are limited and require consideration on a case-by-case basis. So the off-the-plan caretaking and letting agreements are notoriously more difficult to negotiate as the developers are reluctant to make those changes and then trigger redisclosure. 
this is not necessarily an issue because the changes that are one that we make to those agreements are typically ones that wouldn't give a buyer a right to terminate because, say, it would be pretty difficult for um, an owner to argue that making a caretaking agreement more specific to, say, for example, the actual amenities in the complex, a pool existing or not existing, rather than a generic list of duties um, or one that doesn't exist would be detrimental. So we'll circle back to procurement and those particular agreements and that process. Um, Can you chat further to, to that? Yeah, sure. So um, over the years, I've been criticised about being too detailed and pedantic when reviewing those agreements. But this is not really a bad thing, in my uh, opinion, because when you have somebody engaged to act for you, they read every word and consider how they translate into practical effects for for you. I understand there's always excitement um, in everything and um, so many managers say we can sort it out later but the reality is you can't. Once you sign an agreement that's the agreement that you're stuck with. So it's really important that we just take a breath, go through the agreement and make sure it actually works. Um, So I've seen some doozies in the past from those that um, have staged developments with payment requirements that don't adequately separate the different stages to failing to deal with a stage that may never and did not actually ever eventuate and requiring payment for a minimum number of appointments where they never existed. Um, One of my personal favourites is where the agreement failed to deal with the actual settlement of the procurement. So reviewing those agreements is really important as well as understanding how the payment of the procurement sum is made. So um, generally there's what's called the caretaking component which is based on the remuneration payable under the agreement by a multiplier that's worked out in some strange ways, million. We'll leave to the multi- to the values as well. So <laughs> accountants don't really put a, a lot of attention to, you know, discussing about the multipliers. We just work around the net operating profit and uh, we can give only the ranges of multipliers according to the similar complexes, but uh, we don't really comment a lot about the multipliers anyway. So. Yeah. And then, so we've got the caretaking component and then the letting component and that can be broken down into, say, a fixed amount per letting appointment um, or based on the unit type. So um, it could be one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom and then each has a different value. So depending on how many of those appointments you have at settlement, you pay depending on um, that range of figure that's um, the parties have agreed to. Correct. That's what, what's normally what we take as an approach. When we do our projection figures, we will look at the existing letting appointments that have been um, sort of um, sold or potentially in the in the pool. We will apply the assumptions based on one, two, three or four bedrooms in the complex um, and because different uh, room types, they have different room average room rates. So the higher room rates, normally there'll be higher return for the manager anyway. So they try to sort of drill it down into sort of in each individual unit type. I know it is a bit more sort of um, time consuming and more work involved, but sometimes can give a bit more sort of um, uh, thorough projection and uh, <clears throat> gives them more certainty when um, certain other scenarios are applied that we expect 
for example, that developer will, um, from the existing stock that they're holding, uh, will sell another 20, 30 or 40% on top of the existing sales. So we will apply those assumptions to give some certainty to the buyer that when it reaches to that certain stage of sales, what they'll be achieving in terms of the net operating profit. So, but at the end of the day, it's still uh, something that's going to be agreed upon in the contract and uh, which the Vanessa normally deals <laughs> with. Yes. Um, and, you know, a few of the things that we look out for in terms of um, the payment requirements is ensuring that the definition of uh, letting appointment excludes anything that's owned by the developer or an associate of the developer and also ensuring that you're only paying for those lots that have actually settled um, because there are a number of factors that can um, mean that either a settlement is delayed or may not actually ever happen. So you don't want to be caught out paying for something that doesn't exist. Correct. And sometimes, yes, we've seen a few of those that uh, there have been uh, unconditional purchase uh, from of the plan and... and Sometimes they'll pull out anyway and deposits will be lost. So that honour or unit will be lost from the from the pool. So it'll go back to the uh, developer stock. So um, it's quite important to keep an eye on um, the existing uh, units in that have settled because uh, that's pretty much an asset for the buyer that they're purchasing for. So Yeah, that's right. And um, usually we try to structure it so that settlement happens after – um, at least the first round of settlements will occur. So usually um, we look at trying to include a settlement date of 21 days after the scheme is established so sure. that um, the first round of settlements um, have already occurred. So we're actually getting some people there already. Yeah. Um, but either way, you pay for the caretaking component at your first settlement. So um, again, when we're setting them up, we try to um, have those agreements commence when the scheme is established yeah. because your developer will want the manager to work closely with them at that time, um, ensuring that everything's running smoothly at the complex and the manager also needs to receive their uh, remuneration as compensation for that assistance. So if the agreements start when the EGM has been held, they start um, on the day after that EGM and they commence running the business even though it hasn't yet settled, um, but then they're able to assist when the settlements, at the time those settlements actually occur. So you've got your manager there to help them move in and out and do all of those things that um, make life easier for owners moving in. Sure. So I'd like to ask a question when it comes to looking at the GST and the stamp duty on of the plan. Can you please... You know, elaborate more on that. (laughs) This is um, one of the reasons why uh, off the plan is also um, more attractive. So, because the off the plan is a grant of a first ride of the management rights, there's no stamp duty payable, but you pay GST on the procurement amount. But um, as you can probably elaborate further on, um, the GST can be claimed back from the manager. Correct. Um, So it kind of makes it a neutral... Yeah, and basically the, the manager gets the, the benefit of um, getting that credit from purchasing the business. It's not a GST going concern because it's a, just a new business. Uh, uh, but yeah, from the stamp duties, uh, is the manager's unit um, stamped at the purchase? Um, 
yeah, the stamp stamp duty still applies to a unit purchase. Yep. So, um, but as we mentioned earlier, the number of um, off the plan management rights requiring the purchase of a unit has um, decreased. So you're not having to pay for the premium on the unit as well as the stamp duty on that side of things anymore. Yeah, and and if the man if the actual manager decides to buy the unit within the complex and for the relief managers, yeah, that's an option as well for them. Yeah, exactly. And what other things would you look at uh, when looking at letting appointments or what have you seen? So we also um, consider whether there's a minimum number required for settlement. So, for example, if a developer says that there have been uh, 30 units that have been sold to investors and they're expecting those to be in the pool and wanting us to pay for them, we'll put that as a minimum number required for settlement so that we don't settle until we've reached that minimum number. Um, And that's a way of ensuring that, firstly, the manager doesn't pay for appointments that don't exist, but also the representations that are made by the developer are actually true and correct. Um, Because if they're not willing to give that guarantee, that just raises some red flags for us that there could be potential issues. So we also look at whether there's been any rental guarantees that have been given by a developer to any of the buyers of any of the units and they're just guarantees to say that um, you're going to have X amount of dollars per week um, regardless. So it's up to the developer to honour those rental agreements. There's been some situations where the developers tried to pass that obligation back onto a manager, which we refuse to um, include in the agreements because that's something that the manager doesn't have control over. So it'll be up to the developer to, if the, that rental isn't achieved, uh, to top up that weekly rent to ensure that the unit owner gets what they have also bargained for. And this is normally, I've seen a lot of happening uh, in the last couple of years with the leasebacks arrangements where the developer, yes, um, will need to top up and um, sometimes there's an issue uh, when it comes down to tenanting those particular units that have been sold. Um, developers can have a bit of cash outflow problem because of that additional top-up figure. Yeah, and, and that again comes down to backing your representations. So if you're telling somebody that you they can achieve X amount of dollars, you want to be sure that you can actually achieve that. And depending on when a unit contract is entered into and when settlement happens, it could be a number of years. Um, you know, some that are settling now, if they had rental guarantees, I'm sure none of them are having issues given that COVID has increase rents like we haven't seen in a very long time Um, but prior to that um, you know there was a dip in the market because there was an oversupply of of units available and um, for say $500 a week that you could have um, had as a guarantee for a two-bedroom unit you you could have got a three or bedroom unit in a, a brand new complex whereas these days, we're not really yeah. finding that so much no. of an issue. No, that's correct. Yeah, I agree with that. And what happens if they can't deliver on those? Can you decide to terminate the contract? So it depends how you structure it. If you have that settlement is conditional upon X amount of appointments, 
um, then we normally just have it so that we don't settle until that happens and then we have a, um, a date by which if they haven't been able to achieve that because usually the manager still wants to go ahead, then we pay for the appointments that we actually have in place only and the caretaking component. Um, and another way to do it is instead of having the minimum number of appointments is that you only pay for the appointments that you actually have for those lots and again remembering that we're only paying for lots that have actually settled and that there's a form six in place with the new owner not the developer so that way the manager is uh has more certainty that what they're buying is going to give them the income that they're expecting. Correct. It's got to be assigned to them at the time that they buy the, um, the business and all those uh, letting appointments will be transferred to the new manager from, uh, from the developer. Yeah, and often um, we have the when we have the manager assisting so early on in the transaction that the manager actually gets the appointments in their name so we don't have to worry yeah, about... Yeah, from day one, correct. Yeah, so we don't have to worry about the transfer um, but we do include obligations that if the agreements are terminated before set settlement happens that the manager, if they've got appointments in their name, they have to get them transferred to the developer so that the developer can then try to resell the business. There haven't been any situations that I've been involved in where the manager has terminated. We have just been able to negotiate um, that we settle based on um, the appointments that we actually hold. Yep. Um, we often then also have um, a retention amount and there'll be a release date at say the six, nine, 12 month mark yep. and we then give notice to the developer about how many more uh, letting appointments that we have and again the way we structure it is on a case-by-case -case basis and we try to ensure that say if you've had if you had 20 at settlement but you've lost some other than because of your own poor performance that you don't have to then pay for more until that number comes back up to the 20 mark so that you're not paying for appointments um, time and time again. But that also comes down to the manager ensuring that they do their correct job as well and not, um, you know, just letting those appointments sit there and not actively market to try to get them rented either. Yeah, correct. And sometimes we've seen when we were doing verifications where developers stock that um, is sitting as unsold and been looked after the manager for on the letting side because it's been all tenanted. Um, sometimes there are no fees charged. Just depends on the agreement as well. Um, it's just a purely uh, discussion between the manager and the developer. So, but there's a lot of in, in many cases, uh, you know, a manager will charge the stand fees to the developer until the stock has been sold uh, to the investor. Um, yeah, that's right, and. A lot of developers try to insist on clauses being included in the agreement that the manager will um, do everything they can to lease the developer stock first. Yep. And th this is simply unlawful. You can't direct um, tenants to um, lease one unit over another. You have to give them the option of which one that they prefer. So, um, you know, as much as we will tell them that we can't enforce this, they'll still want it in there to um, ensure that, you know, the manager's trying to help them get the best that they can. Yeah. Yeah, this is all behind the scene that we're not involved, so we don't know really much about <laughs> it. Yeah. 
So then uh, when we get to those um, retention dates, like I mentioned, we, um, we also include clawbacks so that if we have paid for more appointments, then um, we find out there's something actually wrong with them. Um, the owner has become an owner-occupier instead of an investor that, again, we get um, – money back for those appointments that we've paid good consideration for um, and, and just to ensure that we are getting what we pay for. And uh, when it comes also buying um, developer stock or the managers sometimes have facing issues where the marketing companies previously selling those units can retain a lot of information of the potential investor buyers so that could be potential risk for the manager, incoming manager, where those units could be easily lost to an outside agent or some other. Yeah, absolutely. And this was an issue for a number of clients a few years back. Um, and we were very specific in the way we drafted it to ensure that it covered any um, of the developer's associates or anyone that they've engaged to do marketing um, or held appointments for that way then we didn't have to pay for those appointments sure. um, because the certainty of them staying in the pool was so low the other way um, we dealt with it in a different contract was to have a guarantee from the developer that those lots would remain in the letting pool for a certain period of time. And uh, so I think it would say three years. And for each year or part thereof that they did not remain in the pool, we could claw back some money from them. Um, and that was just a way of putting a little bit of peace of mind to the manager that they're going to still have income generated from those appointments even though there was that higher risk that they could um, leave. Terrific, because that was going to be my next question, speaking specifically about clawback calculations and developer stock and whether they're included or excluded um, from that. So, yeah. Was, uh, I'm a clairvoyant, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so further from an accounting point of view, is there anything that listeners should know or really keep aware of when looking at this arrangement and I guess um, you know when considering off the plan management rights I know we've spoken about a few things and throughout the discussion but is there anything specifically that's important to, to highlight not really but yeah not you know one size doesn't fit all uh, it's every complex is different um, new development is always different different um, uh, the, the, the developments disclosures different caretaking agreements so you know you have to really be careful and um, engage the lawyers to look and help you on that side when, when it comes to purchasing. Uh, from the accounting perspective, um, we need to verify a lot of things. We need to ask a lot of questions when it comes down to finding the, the correct information uh, at the time of the of the due diligence part. When the managers start taking on the letting appointments, um, I would strongly suggest they need to be careful and you know look through every single appointment page by page, make sure that information is correctly disclosed on the, on the letting appointment, so that's the asset that they're buying. Uh, make sure that it's assignable, it's signed and dated, fee schedule is uh, attached to each Form 6. Uh, if it's changed or amended in the meantime, because there's always um, discussions between the owners and the developer, uh, particularly at the time where commission can be charged at the lower rate as opposed to the standard, make sure that 
that has been initialed and um, otherwise you're taking something over where you can easily interpret it wrongly and um, um, what we've seen before uh, in past that in the management system there will be a few charges will be different from what's on the form sixes and uh, the you know especially if you've been charging for over, over a couple of years that could be a massive adjustment that you need to do uh, overcharging a particular owner so yes there's a um, Always something to be looking after, uh, particularly that side, but uh, I would strongly suggest uh, get in touch with all the professional uh, advisors to help and assist on that side because buying of the plan, it's a complex process, requires help and assistance as the potential buyer. You need to be experienced and you need to know exactly what you're buying. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, getting things correct from the outset is probably one of the most important things that you can do, ensuring that you've set it up correctly. Um, and like you said, making sure that when you're going through, you're inputting data as well into your system correctly because um, that still becomes an issue now where people are collecting um, monies which they're not entitled to because correct. they're not disclosed in their appointment. I guess just to, to finish up in, in that regard, I mean, again, from a, from a legal point of view, is there any sort of final remarks that people should be aware of? Is there anything that um, you know, comes into play in the later stages of these processes and looking at um, off-the-plan complexes? Just ensure that you engage somebody that actually understands uh, management rights and purchasing off-the-plan. Um, that's really critical. You need to read your agreements, you need to understand what it is that you're purchasing um, and, you know, take that breath. The excitement can often overtake us on anything like buying our own house. We get so excited we can overlook things but it is so important. There's a lot of money being invested in this um, and, you know, making sure that it's all correct is really fundamental. Definitely. Thank you very much for, for joining us again uh, today, Vanessa. It's great to, to have you back. Thanks for having me. Um, I know we probably in the last episode uh, put in some details about how to get in contact with yourself, but just for, for those that aren't familiar, what's the, the best way to, to do that? Yeah, you can either email me um, or click onto our website, which is www.nicholsons.com.au. Um, you'll find me under the Management Rights page. Um, we've got a fresh new website, which looks pretty fantastic. Um, and, or you can call us on 3226 3944, or my email is vas at Well, we'll uh, link all those details um, when uh, when the podcast is released. So, uh, yeah, everyone will have those on hand. Uh, if you missed our March episode, which was the first one with Vanessa, I highly recommend going back and, and re-listening to that. Um, as I say, that was more from a from an established complex point of view. So it was great to hear your um, expertise on that. So uh, if anyone's listening um, and would like to hear further from there, that's our March episode. But again, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's lovely to have you back and um, yeah, can't wait to have you again to, to talk more about uh, management rights. Thanks, guys. Thank you. For business owners seeking accounting, taxation, business advisory and superannuation support assistance, please feel free to get in contact with the advisor team at Archer Gallon Redshaw. Led by Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic and Valda Glynn, 
Our firm are a Brisbane CBD-based accounting practice, supporting businesses across a variety of industries throughout Southeast Queensland and nationally. You can get in contact with our team via the website, www.agredshaw.com.au, via email at info at agredshaw.com.au or contacting 07 3002 2699.